Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. The main section of scripture we're gonna be in is Philippians chapter two. So if you wanna open your Bible to Philippians chapter two, I would invite you there. Uh, That's where we'll be for the majority of the morning. Um, I was struck while I was sitting there that um, I'm just proud of our team right now. The, uh, the last two weeks have been uh, crazy. I'll just put it that way, just absolutely crazy. We had student camp a couple weeks ago, which was a lot of our team leaving from here and spending the week in Beckley. So all of our tech team, a lot of our worship team and, and many of our staff, in particular our student pastors, uh, were part of that. And then last week, we had VBS and 300 and something kids in this room with bubble machines and just going crazy. Um, Our facilities guy told me Friday night that we did a great job cleaning up. He said it was a top 10 effort to clean up after what had happened throughout the week with VBS. But this is the the moment of the summer where a lot of this team is running on fumes, so to speak, over since the past two weeks. So I'm just proud of them and the effort that they've put in uh, to serve in the way that they have served this summer. Really, really grateful to them for what they've done. We have been in a series throughout this summer where we are basically focusing on God. We're focusing on God. And as we went into the summer, we thought, you know, this is a good time for us to just pull back and to spend some time focusing on who God is and just seeing God in a foundational way, in a way that just reveals truth to us so that we can then organize our life around this truth. God's word says that when we see God, when we behold God, then he will change us. And so we've been doing that this summer. So the month of June, we spent time looking at God the Father, uh, four messages on God the Father. And then the month of July, we've spent a few weeks on God the Son, on Jesus. And so today is the third in that series. Grateful for uh, Dr. King being with us last week and for Pastor Garrison as he opened the series a couple weeks ago. And so today we continue that. And the big idea for today is this. Beholding the Savior King leads us to surrender as he did. When we see Jesus, our Savior King, it leads us to surrender as he did. You know, surrender is an interesting concept. And I was thinking about moments in our life where we may be found in full surrender. And my mind went to one particular thing. And so if you've been a parent uh, or been a child at any point in your life, then you might've gone through this. But have you ever learned how to swim by standing on the edge of the pool and just jumping in? Like, I don't know if you did that. That's how you learned how to swim. But I remember when um, my daughter, Abigail, was four, we did a vacation to Florida and the, the in-laws were there and they had a pool and she was just dead set on learning how to swim. We didn't have a ton of water uh, where we were. And so she, she wanted to spend that vacation learning how to swim. And so I did what any good dad does. I go in the pool and I hold my arms out and I say, okay, jump. 
right? And what goes through our mind when we actually jump from the wonderfully safe pool deck into about eight feet of water and we have no idea what to do once we hit that water. What goes through our mind? Like that's ultimate surrender, right? Like I'm totally relying on the person who's standing over there with their arms out saying, yes, I'll catch you to believe that they'll actually catch me. So many of us have been through that before. Maybe for you, it was something like repelling. If you've ever been repelling before, you know there's a moment where you have to step off the back over the cliff and you have this rope that on you that they've described to you that is, is really safe and it can hold a lot. And, and you're thinking, I hope so. Did you check it this morning? You know, all those kind of things. But you step off the edge going back over the cliff and there's a moment of surrender where it's like, I'm putting everything I got on this rope. And if this rope doesn't hold me, it's over. It's just so maybe it's skydiving. Maybe you've been skydiving before because you jump out of that plane and it's, there it is. Maybe for you, it's uh, riding with your teenage driver um, is the moment of surrender. I'm going through that right now in my life. But surrender, full, ongoing, ultimate surrender is not something that we experience often in our life because we feel like we have the illusion of control most of the time. But there are moments where we do experience full surrender. And so today I want to challenge you with beholding Jesus, our Savior and our King, leads us to surrender the way that he did, the way that he did. Three things that I want you to see about Jesus today as we journey together. Three things that I want to draw our attention to when we complete the sentence, Jesus is. And so the first one is Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. John chapter one, we studied John chapter one a few weeks ago with Pastor Matt Garrison. He talked to us about the beginning of John chapter one. Um, the word was with us. The word was revealed to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the, the one and only son begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That passage, if you remember just a couple weeks ago. Well, just beyond that, we meet a person named John, John the Baptist. And he was sent as a precursor, a forerunner to Jesus. And he was proclaiming that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming. And he was baptizing throughout all of Israel, proclaiming that the Messiah was on his way, which leads us down to John chapter one, verse 29. And this is the book of John, it says, John, John says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Now to us, that might sound, what is that? That's not something you use in everyday vernacular, everyday conversation. You don't go around calling someone the Lamb of something. But for John, in the context in which he was talking, to say that carried a lot of weight. To proclaim that someone was the Lamb of God would have immediately registered to the people that he was speaking to that he was communicating a truth. He was communicating a prophecy. He was communicating the fulfillment of a prophecy in this person. 
the Lamb of God. So the first thing I want us to see about this Jesus being the sacrificial lamb is that Jesus is the perfect sacrificial substitute. You see, long ago, God had given instructions to Israel about how to have a relationship with him, about how to know that they were right with God. Lots of instructions. For example, in Exodus chapter 27, this is just one example. God says this, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. Make grating for it a bronze network and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the ring so they will be on two sides of the altar when it was carried. This is one altar in the temple. It's the altar of burnt offering. There are books written with instructions how to build the temple, what the rooms in the temple should be like, what the furnishings in the temple should be like, how big they should be, how long they should be, what kind of wood they should be made out of, what kind of precious metal they should be made out of. There are books written about the sacrifices that need to be made. What kind of sacrifice? Which animal? When? On what day? Countless instructions that God gave Israel on how to know they were right with God. In fact, Mike Cosper in his book, Rhythms of Grace, says it this way. The climax of Israel's worship was sacrifice. And there were many of them. There were sacrifices for the dedication of the priests. There were sacrifices for the dedication of the temple. There were ordinary everyday sacrifices and sacrifices for big once a year celebrations. There were sacrifices for the priests and sacrifices for the poor. There were sacrifices for the sick, for the healed and for childbirth. Worship in Israel was a bloody, costly thing. It's so far removed from what we're used to when we come into our freshly sanitized buildings and we wear our Sunday best, so to speak, in our culture. Worship in Israel was anything but. Yes, it was the best of, but it was the best of a flock or a best of a herd or a best of a harvest. You were giving first fruits. It was sacrifice to know that you were right with God. And it was a lot of sacrifice. The God of Israel required a lot of sacrifice. And so to come in to church in those days would have been loud and it would have smelled. It would have been somewhat chaotic with what was going on but there were so many instructions. And so it's in that context that John 
to the people who were engaged in that process says, look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. And in one phrase, John proclaims that Jesus, the Messiah, is coming as the substitute. He's coming to take the place of the system that had been put in place already. He's coming to usher in a new system through himself. He was coming as the lamb, as the perfect sacrificial substitute. So that no longer to know we were right with God, did we have to go through all of those processes? But now we just had to trust Jesus to be that sacrificial substitute. So he was the perfect sacrificial substitute. What else does he say here? Well, he opens salvation to the whole world. Go back to that verse if you can, John 1. He says, behold, or look, the Lamb of God, notice what he finishes with, who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. You see, God had been a God to Israel up till now, and God at this moment was a God of Israel, and that entire system was put in place for Israel to know their God. And John, in one statement, says, here's the substitute, and he opens it to the world in one statement, proclaims that the Messiah is coming. He's gonna take away this whole system and replace it with him because he is the sacrifice, the perfect sacrificial substitute, and it is open to you and to me now through Jesus. He is the sacrificial lamb for all of us. He took our place. He took our place. Number two, number two. So not only is he the sacrificial lamb, number two, he's the humble servant. He's the humble servant. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five. This is Paul speaking. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God, hold on to that word for a second. We'll come back to it in just a minute. But the word nature, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death, on a cross. So Paul is trying to describe how Jesus came to be the Savior. How Jesus left heaven and came to earth. What went on for that to take place? And so Paul is trying to wrap words around that supernatural thing. And his words, like our words, many times can, wow, how do, we, how do we really explain this? But this is what he's trying to explain. That Jesus, 
the creator of all, humbled himself. Jesus, the creator of all, humbled himself. And he uses several words here. So I wanna read it to you in a, in a different translation. So that was the, the NIV, this is the ESV, the English Standard Version. And this is how it's translated in the ESV. Who though he was in the form of God, verse six, did not, did, in, sorry, who though he was in the form of God. So remember, remember the word we had before, nature. Okay, now it's translated form. Okay, same word. But the two translations use two different words there. The first one NIV uses nature. The second one ESV uses form, okay? Form, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So those three words that I've highlighted for you in this translation are all translated form, but they're actually two different words that are used in the Greek. In the English language, it's hard to really get to what is trying to be said here. So I wanna, I wanna call these words out for you because I think they're important for us to understand what Jesus actually did. There's two words there. The first one is morphe, morphe, and it means essence, essence. When we hear the word essence, we kind of know what that means. It's like the, the, the inside stuff that we're made of, the, the true us, the essence of something is kind of the true thing about it. So morphe is essence. And then there's another one, schema, which more means appearance, appearance. And you can see the word schematic would come from this word. And so you can kind of see how it, it, it flavors toward appearance. And so why is this important? Why is it important for us to put these words up there and, and talk through them? Why is that important? Because Paul here is doubling down on what Jesus had said already all throughout his ministry. That he was fully God, but he was also fully human. Pastor Matt Garrison talked about this just a couple weeks ago, that he was 100% God and 100% human. He was fully God, he was fully human. And so Paul, in his explanation of how Jesus came to become our savior, is doubling down on this fact that Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully human. What Jesus did was an addition of humanity without divesting divinity. He says he willingly set aside some of his traits. For instance, he now subjected himself to live in space and time. He would get tired. He would get hungry. He would be in one spot at one moment. He would have to walk from place to place he subjected himself to those things for a temporary time while he lived on earth, 33 years. So the word morphe, essence, is used to describe him as God and then to describe him as servant. 
And the word skehema is used to describe him as man, which has a definition that's short of identity, but instead gives us a temporary outward appearance. So let's read it with those words plugged in. Who though he was in the morphe of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the morphin of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human skimity. Let me give you a really crude example of what's going on here. A couple weeks ago, I've mentioned that we had camp. The lifeblood of camp is leaders, adult leaders who are willing to give up a week of their life. In many cases, they take vacations to go and to be youth leaders at camp. And when they do that, they trade a lot of things. So let's take, for example, Cindy. So Cindy is a, a youth leader friend of mine, and she's a wife, she's a mom, and she's a speech therapist. That's kind of the normal day for Cindy, the normal, regular, all the time stuff for Cindy. But that week, Cindy went as a youth leader. And so when she went as a youth leader, she traded sleeping in her bed for sleeping in a cabin on a bunk bed. She traded eating home-cooked meals for eating camp food at all hours of the day. She traded sleep for not sleep, whatever the opposite of that is. There were so many things that she traded so that she could have an impact in the lives of these students. And she had a massive impact in the lives of these students. But there was a moment where it happened where she got on the bus and she went to Beckley and she was a youth leader for the week. And then there was a moment where it ended and she came back and she rejoined her regular life. Well, that's a totally crude example of what took place. But the impact that was made from her giving up, from her modeling what Jesus had modeled for her is eternal. She is aware that Jesus became a humble servant, giving up the trappings of heaven, laying aside some of the privileges that he had in heaven, subjecting himself to time and space and tired and hungry and on and on and on so that he could be our savior. He became a humble servant for you and for me. The first thing that we see from Jesus is he's the sacrificial lamb. The second thing is he's a humble servant. And the third thing, Paul continues here in Philippians chapter two, and he shows us that now he's the exalted king. He's the exalted king. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. So there's a, there's a contrast here with Paul. He's saying 
He was a humble servant. He became a humble servant. And because he became a humble servant, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that mean? Exalted to the highest place. Well, Jesus came and he, he lived the perfect life and he died the perfect death and he rose from the grave and then he ascended back to heaven. And when he ascended back to heaven, he was given this name, he was exalted to the highest place. And later in Revelation, we get a picture of what he looks like now from John. So John in Revelation gets a picture, sees a vision of what Jesus, now that he's been exalted as king, looks like now. And this is how he describes it. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the, sh the sun shining in all its brilliance. It was the exalted king. No longer was he the humble servant, but now he's the exalted king. I wanna call out one thing from this passage and connect it. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. So everything that John sees here is connected to something. You remember what we read at the very beginning about the altar of burnt offerings, the place where Israel would go to make offering, to make sacrifice for their sins. Do you remember what it was covered in? was covered in bronze. The instructions had bronze all over. Overlay it with bronze, cover that with bronze, make a lattice of bronze. So John, as he's looking at the exalted king, sees evidence of the sacrificial lamb who with feet made out of bronze stood on the altar of burnt offering in our place as our substitute. And now is exalted. And now is exalted. I wanna say something to you this morning that I said to our students at camp just a couple weeks ago, because I think in our culture, we sometimes struggle with this. Jesus is not mad at you. Jesus is not mad at you. Jesus is not angry with you. 
Jesus is not watching you, waiting for you to step out of line so that he can punish you. He's not mad at you. These three things that we just looked at do not portray a savior who is mad at you. They don't give evidence of a savior who came to punish you. They give evidence of a savior who came because he loves you. Because he loves you. Why was he the sacrificial lamb? Because he loves you. Why did he become the humble servant? Because he loves you. Not because he was mad at you. He pursues you. And for some reason, subconsciously, we want law. If I do this, and I do this, and I do this, then God's okay with me. We wanna go back to the old system. And Jesus is saying, no, it's relationship. And I love you because I love you. And I'm pursuing you because I love you. And I'm willing to give up the trappings of heaven so that you can be made right forever with God. And now we have an exalted king who is worthy of our surrender. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you do. We thank you for Jesus and what we've seen today. And we pray that as we stare into who he is and what he's done, that you would use that in our life to change us, to mold us more into his image. I pray God today, if there's someone here who don't, does not know Jesus, that you would even now call them to yourself. We'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory because you're worthy in Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us at biblecenterchurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.